Curry to me is a preparation. It's the inclusion of certain ingredients and to, you know, come up with this dish. But to me, it's the way you add the ingredients, how the method that is used to kind of create this dish. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerd About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always, or usually with me as always, except for that one year she left me to go to Sri Lanka, that's true. and that's Dr. Kaylee Byers. Hello, I did leave you, and I missed you, <laughs> but I also had a fantastic <laughs> time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. There was a uh, a bit of a pause there when you said missed me. I think I, I think you, did miss you. Well, we missed you a lot too. Yeah, I missed Nerd Night a lot, but I had I had a really fantastic time and I'm really excited because today we're going to be talking about Sri Lankan cooking and I have been missing the food a lot. So I'm really, really excited to introduce everyone today to our guest. So today we're chatting with Ruan Mali Samarakun Amunagama, who's the author of the cookbook, Milk, Spice, and Curry Leaves, Hill Country Recipes from the Heart of Sri Lanka. So if you listened to our previous episode with Vanessa Vicaria, you know already that I love this cookbook because it was my nerd out. So I'm really excited to nerd out more about it again today. Hi, Ruan. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It is a joy. We're also really excited. (laughs) So maybe to start, I mean, I'd love to start talking a little bit about the cookbook. So uh, I just gave the title for everyone, but can you tell us a little bit about your cookbook? Where did you get the idea for this beautiful book? Yeah, it honestly really just, I mean, my parents are both from the central province of Sri Lanka. They are both from Kandy, and from eight months of age, my mother started taking my sister, well, me, I was eight months of age, started taking me to Sri Lanka along with my sister. And we would have the opportunity to stop in various places along the way and in Asia and in in Europe. And then we would arrive um, to Sri Lanka, to Colombo, you know, the capital. And then we would, you know, have these journeys from Colombo to Kandy. And it was really an integral part of my upbringing. And you know, then we'd go back home to Canada and I'd have all of this stuff in my head. And I think somehow all of that sort of synthesized into the food because that was the tangible piece that we had, apart from the way they raised us and bringing some cultural elements and obviously in our upbringing, they weren't really sort of strict on a lot of things, but the food was a fun thing about our culture. It was the way I felt my mother connected not only with other Sri Lankan Canadians, but it was how she connected with Canadians. And it's how she built her community everywhere we went in Canada. And we've been to, we've lived in many parts of Canada. And and then I just really started paying attention to her recipes and how she cooked. And then when we would go back to Sri Lanka, I would just get more and more interested in the cooking methods and, and in the central province candy and then going to the markets, talking with the farmers or, you know, where we bought our produce. And then I would come back home and then I would just, I, it just started to meld together for me. And it was my escape. Um, but it was also the a really big part of it was 
how I understood and unfolded my my identity. So that's kind of how it started. But it was also because I wanted to preserve, I think, my mom's recipes and a part of our identity that really, I don't know, connect, it's how I connected with my mom too, just being in the kitchen with her and all the stories that she would share. Um, it always happened over food <laughs> and cooking. That's so lovely. Like so many layers of being brought to this book, it sounds like, like not only just yeah. the food itself, but the memories and the relationships with your mother and bringing all of those things yeah, together. Definitely. So you were just talking about the food and I was really fortunate when I was living in Sri Lanka, I actually lived in the hill country. So I was living in Paradenia. Loved it. It was absolutely beautiful. And I wonder for folks who haven't been there, can you set the scene a little bit for us? What is it like there? What's the, what's the vibe? Yeah. And I think I had two experiences of it. One is lived and one is storytelling. So the candy in the hill country that my mom talked to me about and you know, in her narratives as I was growing up, that was one capsule of candy because that was part of it was pre-war, obviously. And it was kind of a golden era kind of in Sri Lanka. I mean, the we didn't see climate change as we see it now. It was just this very idyllic place to live and the environment and the lushness of it. And it was very a cool place to live. And it really was a simple life. It really was the simple life in the hills you know, you had the tea estates and you had the lush um, vegetation. And and so there was that part of it, which I completely could vividly imagine in my mind. And then there was the candy that I went to as a, from a young girl to, you know, as adolescence and, you know, as an adult. And I did see the progression of global warming as well. I mean, when we first went when I was younger, it really was a cool climate and it was but it was beautiful because we would travel by car from Colombo, which is kind of the opposite, and travel all the way into the hill country. And it's just a very, you know, it was a quieter place. It was boring for me when I was younger <laughs> because it wasn't like where the action was. But then I began to appreciate what it meant to be there and the tranquility of it and the sense you feel you feel more connected to nature. And you feel more of the community there. It's different. It's a different sense of community, I think, in the hills. And part of the book is that part of the book for me is not just about the recipes. That's a big part of it. But this journey that I had taken both, you know, literally, like a literal journey, going, getting off a plane, going, that whole journey, but sort of a, a journey of my identity. I would love to sit in the back seat of the car and just look as, you know, like a like a camera, just look out the window and capture all of these scenes that were so starkly different to my reality in Canada. And when you're younger, it's really apparent, right? It was very, very different. And then, you know, the food, I think, is just, I think we we think of food a certain way, but it's just so layered. Mm -hmm. The recipes are so layered in terms of the influences that come into it. Well, let's get into the food, Ruan. So the book is titled Milk, Spice, and Curry Leaves. Could you maybe talk about some of the, the, the foods that are in that for someone like me that doesn't eat a lot of Sri Lankan food, didn't get to go uh, for a year? Maybe talk a little bit about the recipes and sort of like why you chose some of those uh, for the book. Yeah, I mean, I think the, a big part of it was I remember you know, trying to come up with the title for the book. And then finally, we I just came up with that because, I mean, these are what I call the pillars of Sri Lankan cooking, which is um, the coconut milk, 
is fundamental. The curry leaves are fundamental, and then the spices. And so that's the rich foundation for most all of the recipes. It's it's your it's your base. It's your aromatic base and your all of the textures that come into play. But interestingly, not a lot of people would think of beetroots or they wouldn't think of carrots or they wouldn't think of plantains um, as a curry because I think we have a concept of what curry might be. And so uh, what I really liked was sharing that you could have a beetroot curry and it's a contrast of flavors and it's easy to make. (laughs) It's not as hard to make now that we have a lot of these things available, like coconut milk at a time was tough to get, but it's it's available now. Curry leaves, same thing. It, there was a time where my mom couldn't really, she really had to source the ingredients. Spices, the same. And there's such a, I mean, spices now you can just source wherever you like online or in the store. Or, it was really, I wanted to really break it down for people so they understood curry in terms of what does that mean? And not just an idea. And that what is coconut milk and what is coconut and speaking to that and really breaking down the spices, the kinds of spices we use. Because the question I would get from many people was like, isn't Sri Lankan food the same as Indian food? Isn't this the same thing? And it's not because we use a different formula for the spices. So we get a different outcome and the way we prepare it with the spices. And so, yeah, I think that's what I want to do with the beginning part of the book. Maybe for someone like me, that's also very new to this world. I have an idea of what curry is, but from a very limited, I've yeah. lived in Vancouver my whole life. I've only from the restaurants in my vicinity. So from your perspective, you know, what is curry? To me, it's just a preparation of a dish because curry leaves have a very unique taste, but a cur- curries don't taste like, like when we use the word curry, it's not the taste of a curry leaf. Curry to me is a preparation. It's the inclusion of certain ingredients and to, you know, come up with this dish. but to me, it's the way you add the ingredients, how the method that is used to kind of create this dish. And some curries have a thicker gravy. Some curries have a thinner gravy. Um, they have all different colors. That's something I talked about in the book was there's, I'll translate it in English, but a black curry, a red curry, and then a, a white curry. And they have all, and when we say that in Sinhalese, we all, we understand what that means how those spices are ro- are roasted or used in the curry. So it's really a preparation. And I think what's happened in the common use of it is it's just connected to a region of the world and spice and a smell of a spice, but it's not really explained in terms of, so I tried to break that down a bit in talking about the pillars and to help people understand that it is it is a dish, but it's a preparation of a dish that includes you know, certain ingredients. So yeah, yeah, I love that about a process instead of a sort of like the outcome, maybe, you know? Yeah. And it's funny, because when we were translating the book, so I was translating, now you'll find it, we might say tomato curry in English, but the translation below it will say, thakali malua. So, you know, in Sinhalese, we say malua, we don't say curry. So it wasn't necessarily a Sinhalese word. So, yeah, so I think when when you're from Sri Lanka, you think of it in a different way. Maybe if you're raised in Sri Lanka, you might think of it as a preparation, as a, as a way to prepare a dish. Yeah. I'm curious about, you know, 
the amount of research that you did when you were going and creating this book, like how much of what's inside the book is from your your past, like what you knew of shrunken cuisine, um, and how much of it uh, did you sort of discover when you did some research? Uh, did you find any surprises uh, along the way? Like, what? Uh, talk a little bit about that process. Yeah. So when I was um, in my teens, when I was to, used to go to Sri Lanka, I used to go to the bookstores and I would sort of scour the bookstores for not just recipe books, but just old books that I was, and I know no one who's hearing the podcast can see this, but I have these very old books. Um, and I have one on Ayurveda and it really, these books would kind of really date back to the methods of cooking and how the environment and how plants were traditionally used and how, how people would transport food within the villages you know, why you would have a rice bundle. And, you know, it just connected all these dots for me, and how food was presented, very contrary to the the way Western in Western societies, how we have food, all the food is brought at once. And there's one main grain, and then there's a number of an abundance of all these other dishes. I really read up about those things. And I really read up on the translations because the translations have changed. Like what you would translate now would have been different, you know, 20 years ago and then 50 years ago. So I really spent time with those old books. And then I really, you know, needled into my mother's and my father's knowledge because my father's father, um, had many plantations, you know, his story was it began with one coconut tree, one coconut plant. And then he had so many plantations by the end of his life. I mean, they couldn't account for it. So, I mean, he has such an in-depth knowledge on farming and um, growing um, and then preparation of food and how that intertwined with community. It was always about the community because you had to sustain the community. And so it was a very noble thing to be a farmer and especially in rice and paddy cultivation was a very noble thing. And what that, how that resonated into your community. And I really started to get a sense of real true respect for that occupation. Um, and, uh, it's kind of it got kind of lost, I think, in Sri Lanka during the civil war and whatnot. And I think there's a resurgence sort of happening now. And part of the book is to tell that story of slowing down with our lives and knowing the food that we're eating and taking time to to cook it. Because, like part one curry I mentioned is the jackfruit curry that would sit on in a pot over an open flame overnight. Like who would do that? <laughs> now we're looking for our microwave dinners now. But I try to do that even as busy as I am with a daughter and my, we're all busy. I still try to do that because it forces you even spiritually and mentally to take, to slow down, to slow down so that you're processing life and you're processing what you're eating and appreciating what you're eating. The jackfruit. I love in a book that talks about the young jackfruit and the older jackfruit and how you can use them for different things. Yeah. And that was something that was really shocking to me when I when I was living in Sri Lanka because I'd only ever had the sweet jackfruit. And the first time I had young jackfruit in a curry was exceptional. I absolutely loved it. And it was this it was this totally new thing for me. It might as well have been a totally different entity other than jackfruit. Well, yeah, and it was funny. My dad, it's funny, we kind of characterize or caricaturize 
things in Sri Lanka by my dad talks about jackfruit like it's yeah it's four different beings you know and uh, you know when he describes he's like oh yeah they're you know four different jackfruits you know it's the same fruit but it's four different I was okay you know and I always only ate the young jackfruit and I was vegetarian for many years like 15 years and this was my staple because it is actually there's so much substance to it it's very interesting I just find the plant life in Sri Lanka so interesting and they're so unusual looking, you know. I remember seeing the first time I saw a jackfruit hanging on a tree, and I was again in the back seat of his car, and I'm looking at it, going, "That is so bizarre! <laughs> like that's so huge." <laughs> so yeah, I mean, God's blessings. I just think it's so amazing, and we just we just kind of just take it for granted. So yeah. So you were just talking about you know these incredible fruits and uh, sort of the variety across Sri Lanka, and the book is really based on place, right? We're in the hill country and we're exploring recipes in the hill country. What about these recipes are sort of unique to the hill country? Like how would this differ, say, if the book was in the east in Trincomalee or in the south in Hecatua? Yeah, I mean, I think in the southern provinces and coastal, let's say coastal, there would be more incorporation of the fish because in the central province, we did it was a kind of a treat, or even um, meat was kind of a treat. Mm -hmm. So the vegetables that grew and were common were the potato, the root vegetables, and the nightshade kind of plants. You know, ash plantain, gourds. Those were things you wouldn't normally think of. Like I don't know if you got to try the the squash. But, you know, they're very, these are the types of vegetables that would be incorporated. But then the types of the rice, the way the rice would be used. So pitu, which is something I talk about, or the string hoppers. Those are very central. Now, those weren't really included in the book because you need certain things to make those things. But a very a, a very large vegetarian diet. My, I mean, my grandmother's Buddhist, so it was largely vegetarian diet for her. Um Pulsumble, things like that, where it was grated coconut. The roti um, is very unique. The coconut roti is very unique to candy. So um, what I try to express in the book as well is if there was a conception that you couldn't, that it was most, mostly meat or something, that it's so not the case. Like there's, if you just learn the basics of how to make some of these dishes, it's so easy to adapt to so many um vegetables and fruits. Ruan, you know, in the book, you talk about traditional cooking methods and you've, uh, you've talked about them here. And you also describe uh, some of the key ingredients, you know, like the jackfruit um, as well. But why was it important for you to share these extra pieces of information beyond just sharing the recipes themselves? Is there, is there something that you're doing here with the preservation of these, of these methods? Yeah, it's a big thing, actually. When I went, met my husband and he came from Sri Lanka and he was dropped in Philadelphia, <laughs> essentially, to go to university, he didn't know how to cook. And there's many um, sort of that generation who who left Sri Lanka maybe around the time of the war or after the war, what have you, and or like myself, second generation Americans or Canadians who maybe our parents cooked for us, but we didn't necessarily know how to make those very favored recipes. And there is a method to it. And there is a way to cook it. And so, you know, and our parents didn't necessarily measure anything. It's just such an intuitive, they're such intuitive cooks. 
So I really wanted something for those that second, third generation who I knew would want these recipes, but wouldn't wouldn't really have the uh, means to do it. Because if you went when I was young, anyways, and kind of scouring the bookstores in Canada, I really didn't find any Sri Lankan cookbooks. And it kind of bothered me because I would go and I would, you know, over the years, increasingly see the diversity section, the ethnic section increase, but I didn't see Sri Lankan cookbooks. And I thought that was such a missing thing, like kind of a bit of a gap. And I knew there was a need for it. So I wanted to to offer that not only for me, but for my daughter or for other generations who wanted a, just a source. So maybe thinking about that, there was sort of a gap and, and you've written this book and what has the reception been like? Yeah, the reception was great. I didn't know. I think the first review I read was from Epicurious and that was kind of stunning. And um, and then from there, it was, you know, Seattle Times, it was LA Times, it was National Post of Mail, Sri Lanka, there was the Sunday Times. Yeah, I mean, most recently Forbes. <laughs> so it's gotten, uh, it's gotten a lot of attention, which has been great. And I just hope it opens the door for, for these kinds of books to become more mainstream and not to just be kind of on the periphery, um, mm -hmm. but to be a part of. So, and for people to relate to the journey, I think that's why I wanted to write the book a certain way. So they could relate to a journey. I mean, it is. It is. It is a beautiful book, beautiful recipes, and there's also a really beautiful story throughout. But speaking of recipes, here's the question I'm sure that everybody asks because it's really basic. <laughs> but do you have do you have a favorite recipe in this book? Like one that really draws you, that you're really really excited about, or encourage folks to try first? Yeah, I think the one that was really popular right from the get go was a cashew nut. Mm. because I think people had become familiar with like maybe cashew nut milk. That particular recipe got a lot of interest. And I love that recipe because the first time I actually ate cashew nut curry in Sri Lanka, oh my gosh, it was just unreal. It, it, it does taste like milk. Like it just melts in your mouth. But I love pineapple curry. And it's one of those, either you love it or you don't because you don't associate fruit with curry. But I love pineapple curry. And uh, I love the beetroot curry too. And I should mention, the so the roasted curry powder, which is in the beginning of the book, which is the single thing that distinguishes Sri Lankan cooking from maybe other Indian cooking, is that roasted. It's a deep roasted curry powder. So the the seeds are roasted to like almost a coffee brown. And that's really signature to, to some of those recipes. And I sell that. So <gasps> if folks want to go and buy that, they can go to my website, uh, Savoring Serendipity, and we just released that. So it's it's hard to make. I will say the recipe is right there. And what I do, I, I that those are the exact ingredients, but it's, it is hard to make. So I wanted to make that available to people. So please check it out on Savoring Serendipity. That was a goal of mine, was to try to make that curry because I, I had a little curry left from Sri Lanka still. I mean, it's been in the cupboard a while. It still tastes great. <laughs> but I thought, yeah, I'm going to try to make it. But I think you just got yourself a customer. <laughs> so, Ruan, so this is your first book, right? Correct. Yeah. So have you been thinking about, you know, uh, a sequel? Is there some recipes that you uh, didn't get to that you would like to uh, get into or perhaps another type of uh, book that you'd like to follow up with? 
Absolutely. I'm looking at desserts. And um, I would also love to, you know, because when I was young, of course, the war was on. And, and then when I was able to travel, I had my daughter <laughs> more freely when I wanted to travel more freely all over the island, I had my daughter. So we didn't. So I would love to go and, you know, go to Jaffna. I would love to go to the parts of the country that I, I couldn't visit and just get to know some of those regions a bit more. Yeah. What kind of desserts are we talking about here? Well, there's something called jaggery. You know, in Sri Lanka, they have something called jaggery, which is sugar from the palm tree. So it has a very, um, very unique taste. There's a lot of um, sort of puddings and custards. And a lot of um, desserts came from the sort of the Dutch influences. So love cake, they call it love cakes or Christmas cakes or certain types of cookies or sweetmeats. They call it sweetmeats, but these are desserts. So, and the types of nuts they use are cashew nuts and cinnamon. I think that's where you see certain spices shine in a different way. I think in North America, when we think spice, we think of Christmas time cooking. Um, so I'd like to show the other side and, and think sort of show the dessert side of it. Well, that was sweet. Should we do something else that's sweet, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's get the nerd herd in here. Why is the sky What's at the center of a black hole? When we evolve, does anyone have free will? What is like carbon based? Why do we keep it? It's time for listener questions. All right. If you want to get in on the Nerd Herd questions, we post them on our socials at NerdNightYVR, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, we look at one question uh, for you, Rowan, uh, but it's a good one. From Promode, is there much known about Sri Lankan cuisine prior to colonization? I mean, colonization was, you know, 16th, 17th, 18th century. I mean, I'm not too sure prior to that i would still think the influences in in cooking would have been you know plants and spices but i i don't know too much prior to to that what kind of types of cooking there would have been yeah i've wondered about which which vegetables and things might have been introduced and what has been in places before and then after well i think um well you know the potatoes and things like carrots they were introduced i think by the British. So I think the types of food that would have been there pre-colonize, and even in the Portuguese, the type types of chilies. And so I think pre-colonization, you can be sure that there was still coconut and plantains and the jackfruits. And there's something called breadfruit. You might've tasted that when you were in Sri Lanka. Um, I think all of those. And then um, Ayurveda is such an old, old tradition. And that's really the incorporation of spice for preventative and curative health. So I'm sure all of that was there. My great, great grandparents were Ayurvedic practitioners. So I'm sure plants and spices and whatever type of game there was would have been, would have been the types of foods that were eaten. Yeah. Wait, there's something called breadfruit? Yeah. It's like my two favorite things together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it's kind of like bread. It's like for everybody. It's because if you can't afford something, breadfruit, it really can sustain you and fill you up. So my mom loves breadfruit. I should not have waited to uh, eat dinner until uh, after until after recording this podcast. <laughs> now all you'll be thinking about is breadfruit. Uh, should we nerd out? Yes, I would love to nerd out. What you nerd about? All 
right. If you want to get in on the nerd outs, you can on our social media at NerdNightYVR, Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. You'd also email us, Vancouver at NerdNight.com. Or you can also call in. We've got our first call-in nerd out. What? Uh, so we are connecting with Sophia Lacroix from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Hey, Sophia, how are you doing? Pretty good. So what are you nerding about? Right now, I'm nerding out about plastic. It seems like every day I am just learning so many new interesting facts about plastic and how it's impacting our planet and just the revolutionary ways that people are, you know, reusing and recycling the abundance of plastic waste that we have as a global community. That is super cool. I am going to guess that the recycling is different than something I just learned about rats, which is that they'll sometimes bring plastic into their nests, which is sort of recycling. <laughs> what kind of cool stuff is going on with the recycling initiative? Um, well, I am part of an organization that's called SK Eco Solutions, which was founded by myself and my partner, Kai Chen. We are um, two 11th grade students from Bishop James Ohoney High School from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And our recycling initiative is to turn household plastic waste, like PET type one plastic bottles, into 3D recyclable filament. Oh, cool. Cool. What can I do with 3D recyclable filament? I mean, the filament that we produce is pretty much the exact same as any type of normal ABS or PLA 3D printing filament. You can make anything that your printer has the capacity to print. Okay. Whoa. So if rats had this potential, they could build themselves a whole nest <laughs> out of it with 3D printers. I mean, they could build an entire rat king throne if they really wanted to. Sophia, another last quick, quick question for you. You know, you started this project um, this past year. Have you found that there's been a uh, an issue with plastics at home? I can imagine, you know, more people are at home, more people are buying foods at home, you know, more plastic bottles, more plastic everything. You know, what have you found over this past year with plastic usage? Well, people have gravitated a lot more towards using plastic in a household way because because lots of um, more eco-friendly options aren't necessarily viewed as sanitary, quote-unquote. So people have been buying lots more plastic bottles, um, plastic wrap things as a way to view it as like a, like a safety precaution in a way. So over the course of the past year, obviously, there's been a huge influx of things like plastic gloves, non-biodegradable, non-recyclable wipes that have been used, and of course, tons of disposable masks. And the issue that I've had with this personally is that there aren't new ways to recycle these household items. You know, like they're they're everywhere and everybody can find so many things in their house that they've just kind of kept because they can't really recycle it. And it's kind of trash at this point, but then they feel bad throwing it out. The most frustrating thing is that we don't have solutions to recycle every type of plastic yet. And we're still kind of at ground zero trying to figure out new ways to do it. Absolutely. Well, Sophia, thank you so much for calling in. Where can people learn uh, about um, this initiative that you put together? For all things um, SK Eco, they can contact us at our email, which is skecoyxc at gmail.com. Or they can give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook, which is also the same handle, SKEgoYXE. Awesome. Thanks, Sophia. Of course. Thank you guys so much. All right. Shout out to Promote for creating our new Nerd Herd call-in 
audio track. Okay, Ruan, what have you been nerding out about recently? Well, right now I am nerding about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It is a course I'm nerding out about through Yale University. And it's a subject that I've been just really um, always interested in. It's been intertwined with my own experiences as a Sri Lankan Canadian. Um, It's intertwined with my even the cookbook in terms of understanding identity and what are how we understand ourselves, how we understand, you know, other people. I whenever I would travel to Sri Lanka, I would come back because we'd always have stops along the way, whether it was Japan or Singapore, Germany. And I would come back with this bird's eye view. I really felt like I saw culture from that that height. And it was harder for me to relate to people because of it, because I didn't see it as I didn't see self or identity as this thing. I understood it as so much broader. And it's a good thing, but it was harder to relate to people. But now we're in an era where we're really trying to understand that so we can better get along. We can coexist better and we can relate to people better for the benefit of of everything for of everyone. And so it's something that I've felt very strongly about. So that's what I'm learning right now. <laughs> we're all learning. That's an incredible thing to be nerding out about. Did you say you were taking a course through Yale? Yes. Yeah. So it's called Fostering uh, Inclusion and Diversity. And it's not what you would normally think about. It's not just talking about, they're really talking about how do you t- take somebody's perspective? How do you take somebody's perspective and their their trajectory and include it in your in your work? and work life. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's something I, I've tried to really bring, especially to the center when, I, when I've been teaching, is really thinking about like how everybody's unique experiences make everybody so different and how do you incorporate all of those things to bring folks together to, to learn about something and to have discussions and to learn from each other. And I think that's, um, that getting to know identity is really, really special. It is. And it's funny because you look to nature, you look to science, or you look to the natural world and we see diversity all around us coexisting quite beautifully, quite harmoniously. <laughs> and yet we struggle with it and we struggle with that piece. So there's quite a deep um, psychological piece to that that I'm quite interested in. Very cool. What about you, Michael? Are you grappling with any uh, psychological <laughs> pieces right now? What are you nerding out about? Uh, grappling with some rather large, uh, large things. So uh, on June 16th, uh, which is a little after we released this episode, I think, uh, putting together another online cosmic night on dinosaurs. Now, Ruan, I know your your daughter is into space, so. Do you know, if I say dinosaurs, do you know what wiped out the dinosaurs? I'm just going to take a guess, but was it an asteroid? It, well, it was an asteroid. That's that. That is the name of the event that I put together. Uh, it is called Dinosaurs and the Asteroid. But uh, our the special guest that I'm bringing in for this event, uh, Amir Siraj uh, from Harvard, uh, just released a brand new paper that revealed a new model of what wiped out the dinosaurs. And spoiler wasn't an asteroid. Excuse me, what? But it was a comet. 
<laughs> is a comet. So a quick primer on the difference between uh, an asteroid and a comet. Asteroids, primarily rock, metal-based, leftover fragments of the early solar system, kind of linger around, kind of in between uh, Mars and Jupiter, and sometimes come close to us. Comets, however, they come from way out in the far reaches of the solar system. They're primarily made of ice and gas, but their model states that a potential impact from a comet, it may not have been that big, but if it was coming in at that trajectory, would it come in really, really fast? And so they're thinking that uh, it might have been a smaller object, but a, a one that had a uh, much greater force. Now, Kaylee, uh, everyone, you're probably asking, you know, does it really matter if we know if it was a comet or an asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs? Like, <laughs> both are pretty bad. You know, um, and, and you're right. <laughs> but remember, when it comes to extinction level events, you know, there's a lot out there that we're not prepared for. And I mean, we were barely prepared for this pandemic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shockingly underprepared. <laughs> You know, and, and comets have really haven't been studied that much because they're they're so far away. And when they come by, they just zip by our planet, you know, in a matter of like days. I mean, like we saw one, you know, up in the skies uh, here uh, last year. So this really is, you know, uh, Amir and his uh, team at Harvard um, have really started to put together a little bit more of a focus on, you know, let's let's look at comets. And, you know, it was put together with a one of his colleagues, uh, kind of a controversial guy named Avi Loeb, um, who some of our listeners may know. He released a paper recently that stated there was this object called Oumuamua that came into our solar system that was actually aliens. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's lots of objects out there that we, you know, they come by really quickly. But if we know... The, where they're kind of coming from, we can be prepared for that. And we can study them. And that's really the main point of this. So, you know, Comet's super cool. Maybe wiped out the Dymos, you know, uh, come online June 16th with um, Amir Siraj uh, at the Space Center. Get ready to forget everything you thought you knew about mass ex- the mass extinction event of the dinosaurs. <laughs> and then just change it a little bit and uh, put it back in your brain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what, that's what I love doing is kind of like, you know, set people's expectations for something completely different, but then it ends up being close to what they thought it was, just, you know, different and fun. Speaking of expectations, uh, Kaylee, uh, what have you got for us for your nerd out? Oh, wow. That was a that was a great segue. Our segues are sometimes fine, so that was much <laughs> that was pretty good. So if you listen to the podcast, which obviously you do because you're currently listening, or if you used to attend live events, you'll know that I've spent a lot of time studying rats. I studied rats for my PhD. I still study them now in my role in my postdoc. But recently, I've also started doing some planning for some bat research here in BC. So our flying friends that are not closely related to rats. So if you thought they were just flying rats, take that out of your brain, change it, and then put it back in. So no, they are not. So I've been starting to do some work with bats. And and because I'm doing that work, I've also been meeting now a whole new group of bat researchers and community organizers who love bats. so much. I'm going to say the bat community is a lot more enthusiastic than the rat community. I will I will say that. <laughs> so um, getting, getting to know this community, I've also become aware of some really cool local initiatives. And I want to tell you about 
one of them. So uh, there's there's a new initiative here in the Lower Mainland to get you and your kiddos, if you have them, out there listening to your local bats. So the Fraser Valley Regional Library has just launched a new program called Bat Packs. I know, clever. I'm jealous I didn't come up with it. So you can loan these backpacks out for a ser- like a period of about three weeks through the Fraser Valley Regional Library. And each bat pack includes an echometer, bat detector that can be attached to your cell phone and can be used to listen to bats and see where they are. So you can go out there and you can you can find where the bats are. You can listen to them. Um, there's also a copy of a BC Bat-Friendly Communities Guide for bat species identification and a copy of a booklet called Bat Citizens Defending the Ninjas of the Night. Wow. I, <laughs> I wish this was happening in Washington, too. <laughs> well, you, sh- you should look to see if they have something similar. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's a cool initiative. I'm sure some different cities do it. Uh, the bat packs are designed to raise an awareness and appreciation for bats because bats are, one, amazing, and we often are scared of them and, and should be really appreciative of them because they help control insects and the environment. They also help cycle nutrients through wetlands and forests. And half of the bat species in BC are considered species at risk. Get out there, listen to your bat neighbors, and learn to love them so we can all uh, conserve them together. So that's what I'm nerding out about. You know, the bats, they've got their own superhero. I mean, like, you really need to get on, like, the the rat superhero um, so that we can really get more people's, you know, attention on rats, right? Well, Splinter was kind of a superhero. Yes, but I mean, I guess what what I'm trying to say is like we need to we need to we need to get Splinter his own thing because it's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know. So it's the turtles are the focus. Oh, uh, and yeah. Splinter's an add-on. Oh, I hear you. No, you're right. I'll uh, work on that immediately. I'll start. I'll start sending out proposals. Oh, uh, Rowan, thank you so much for joining us on Nerd and About. Um, where can people get this amazing cookbook? I think that we're going to be giving uh, one away on our Instagram. So if you're listening to this, uh, get onto our Instagram. I believe we are going to give away a copy of the book. But where can people, you know, find the book and also learn more about you? Yeah, I mean, essentially, the book can be bought anywhere books are sold. (laughs) Um, In Canada, Chapters, Indigo, um, internationally, Amazon. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, you can learn more about me and um, my book on savoringserendipity.com. That's my website. And uh, yeah, I hope you can check me out there. Thank you so much. This was so fun. I am going to immediately after this go buy some curry powder. And um, for everybody listening, thank you so much for tuning in and joining us as well. If you want to hear more from us, you can hear us on our socials at NerdNightYVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until we meet again, take some time for a curry and enjoy the process of cooking.